to Architecting. I'm your host, Angela Mazzi. You made it. This is the landing pad for raw honesty about connecting your career with your purpose. I'm going to give you the tools you need to be an unapologetic advocate for yourself and others, because if you're here, you believe that the space we surround ourselves in matters and you're committed to project by project building a better world for all of us. If you're with me, let's get architecting. So my suggestion is always to you know set the goals for the project as the goals for the project and think about what those sustainability goals are and then find the right certification or standard program that fits those goals that you have uh, that is going to let you push them maybe farther than you would without the certification, but also give you the chance to talk about them uh, and really celebrate them when you're successful. I'm so excited today to celebrate Earth Day by showcasing someone who really has been a pioneer in this industry and is just such a great example of being proactive instead of passive with your career. Stacy Smedley has a background in architecture and did work for a while in an architecture firm, but her passion for sustainability really led her down a very different path. She worked on the first Lead for Homes Platinum Certified Project in Washington State, as well as the first project in the world to be certified under the Living Building Version 2.0 standard. She's a Sustainability Director at Skanska, but she's also led a whole lot of really cool sustainable initiatives that I can't wait for you to hear about. She works within Building Transparency, and has developed a free open access embodied carbon in construction calculator, which is a really cool tool you are going to want to learn more about. She's also been very generous with her time working in many advisory and leadership roles to really bring attention to client action and change. So join me in welcoming Stacy Smedley. Hey there, Stacy. Hey, how are you? I am great. Stacy is a sustainability and resilient expert, and I couldn't think of a better perspective for our Earth Day episode. So we're really, really excited to have you on the show and really pick your brain on this. I want to get started with your story. I think a lot of people look at someone who has established themselves in their career and look at them only in that snapshot of where they are now, but it's really important to tell the story of how you got there. So you have an architecture education, But then you chose a very different career path. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got from there to here? Definitely grew up thinking I was going to be an architect for my whole entire career. I did a report on Julia Morgan when I was uh, in the fifth grade, first female architect. I did a whole bunch of things first, and I, I fell in love with her and the fact that she went and kind of forged this trail. So I went to architecture school and definitely went down that path, but always had this kind of lens of, of sustainability or environment that I was looking through based on my grandpa selling our land when I was young and seeing that we could basically take land and turn it into subdivisions. And so there's this combination of really construction and design in my brain, how we could do that better. All through this lens of this amazing woman that I um, idolized that was this architect in California. 
the first 10 years I really did, I got my degree in architecture. I practiced architecture. I worked through my internship. I designed some really cool projects, but was always looking to try to have you know, basically push the envelope when it came to the environmental or sustainability goals. And I, I knew that's where my heart was. I was lucky enough to design a project uh, to the Living Building Challenge Standards and found Skanska, which was a, a global contractor with a huge presence here in the States that was looking at things through the sustainability lens like I was. And I co-located at their office. And so I was on a construction, in a construction office, seeing all of the impacts the construction had on the environment and realized that it wasn't necessarily me designing the projects that mattered. It was me uh, being parts of projects that were environmentally positive, forward thinking. And that impact first part was something that was the part that had really had me fall in love with Julia Morgan in the first place. And I realized that through this course of this project. So I ended up basically asking Skanska for a job to see if I could come work on projects through that sustainability lens for them on the general contractor side. You know, coming from the architecture side, the GC side can be kind of behind the curtain and a little black boxes. So I, I entered that black box, I turned it into a green box, and then I learned about construction and did pre-construction estimating and things I'd never had any background in, always pushing myself into the sustainability lane. So that's really how I got to that point. Yeah, I think that's just so brave that you were able to identify a passion and then make your own opportunity, basically ask for what you wanted to experience and get it. You know, so once you got there, what was it like? Was it everything you hoped it would be or did do you have to kind of push through some obstacles? You still have to push. I mean, I, I was lucky to the leadership in the Skanska Seattle office was was also very forward thinking, still is. Didn't really have a job description for someone just focused on sustainability. So worked with me as they put me in that kind of learning role to say, okay, if these projects come up that have sustainability goals, we, we want you to help on them and let's see how we turn this into a full-time position. But know that you're going to have to do some of these other things that are part of construction so that you're familiar with it, but also because right now there isn't a full-time job for sustainability. And they're really flexible with that for me, but I did have to dig in. You know, I'm a right-brained architect. I had to estimate and take do takeoffs of drawings and math and Excel spreadsheets and unit costs and all sorts of things that maybe didn't speak to my, my right-brainness at the time. But I, I knew that it was going to round out what I I could be confident in talking about and understanding and that the more I knew about construction in general, the better I could then support the sustainability goals. So when it got frustrating or when it was not what I wish I was doing, you know, just in, in a spreadsheet versus something maybe more big thinking, big picture thinking, I, I reminded myself of that, that, you know, this is all going to round out what I know. And um, I'm very lucky to be in a position where they're allowing me to explore um, what I really want to do at the same time. That is so important that you were able to do that. So many people only want to do the glamorous things. And when they do something that feels like it's not related, they get very discouraged. That's something I have to coach people on quite a lot. You know, what you said is just perfect. You always look for how it was helping to lay the path forward, even if it didn't immediately on the surface seem like something that you wanted to be doing. An architecture uh, example that I can give is, you know, you go to architecture school, you do all this beautiful drawing and this big thinking and putting together these concepts. And then you get into your internship and you're doing, you know, envelope details and these, these different things that may not be that again, exciting stuff. That's the concept stuff that you start to do in school, but then you get to a job site or you're doing construction quality assurance or documentation. 
and that detail that you now understand, you're going to see it built and you understand that you've got to know that well, because it's part of what you're designing, right? There's these different layers of all this stuff. But I remember being in my internship and drawing those, you know, wall details over and over again with the flashing and all the things thinking, you know, why am I doing this? But once you, once you understand that what you're drawing turns into an actual built object, again, it's that layering all the stuff you've got to know. So you haven't just kept your passion for sustainability restricted to the job you have. You've branched out into a lot of other organizations and are working right now with the Living Future Institutes. How did you find out about, join, get involved in, and grow with the other professional organizations that you're a part of? Yeah, I mean, it really did start right out of college. I looked for opportunities. There were a lot of young professional network groups in the sustainability space, whether it was the U.S. Green Building Council and their emerging professional program where you could apply to actually help them recruit emerging professionals or the Living Future Institute back when it was the Cascadia Green Building Council. I volunteered to be on their steering committee and and help with um, membership and, and events. And I will say that doing that in that point in my career, you know, I'm now over 40 and all of those folks that I was networking with are also over 40. We've all kind of risen up to this next level of our career and can, and can network at that level now. So it was actually, I hadn't thought about it through the lens of the networking it was more about how to get involved with these organizations that did stuff I cared about, but it was a huge benefit because you build these connections and these professional networks that then carry with you as you all kind of advance forward. And networking is so powerful. And a lot of people think I don't have time for that or it's schmoozing, but I think you can make really authentic connections when you're all doing work that you're passionate about. Absolutely. And as time goes on, Those connections really become ways that you can collaborate together and make a big difference in the world. And elevate your work. Yeah, at a certain level of of your career, you're you're in the decision-making realm of things. If it's not you, it's someone that you know, and you really can push things forward. So how did you come to the Living Future Institute? I've worked with them for a long time. Um, During my architecture time at KMD Architects, um, I started going to their conferences. They call them unconferences that where they bring together professionals to look at kind of forward thinking sustainability initiatives. They just put out the Living Building Challenge. And I got really excited about listening to the CEO at the time, Jason McLennan, talk about creating these buildings that were regenerative and basically net positive. And he put a call to action out there for folks to go out and just build these buildings. So I put together a team at the time of architects from KMD, uh, myself and a colleague, and then engineers and Skanska as a GC to basically build a pro bono living building for a a school here in Washington, and then get it certified to living building challenge standards. Um, It became the fourth certified one in the world, which was really exciting. Oh, wow. And now I continue to work with them just through their different certifications. They've got a zero carbon certification now, digs into the carbon emissions of buildings when it comes to how they operate with energy and how they are built out of materials that emit carbon. So a lot of the work that I do is is doing things that can support their certification systems. I got really excited when I first heard about it because they really were taking it beyond sustainability and thinking about other cultural and social issues. So have you had a chance to really dig into the relationship to equity and climate justice? And do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's definitely um, having been in this space 
kind of from the beginning of LEED, even when it was all about VOC content and recycled content, then moving into all these other emissions, you know, toxicity of materials, which the Living Building Challenge looks at, and now carbon emissions. And then now finally getting to the point where we tie all of that to social equity, thinking about people that are most affected by climate change, which our building sector has a huge uh, role to play in, you know, 40% of emissions are from the built, built environment. So what are those people that are in these frontline communities that are either being exposed to pollution or in the places that are going to feel the impacts of drought and heat and all the things first? How do we think through that lens? as we make decisions. But also a lot of stuff coming up right now is about you know, fair labor and, and equitable labor practices. And you know where are we sourcing our materials from? It comes up in the fashion industry and other things too, but it's the same with buildings. We build out of a lot of things and we have a lot of labor that construct those buildings. So how are we ensuring that all of that is fair and equitable um, for the folks that are basically creating these, pro- these projects that we can then go experience and enjoy? Yeah, the whole supply chain issue. There's a lot of dark things going on at the bottom of the supply chain. Yeah, so it's nice to have programs like what the Living Future Institute does with their Just Label and some of the different requirements than the Living Building Challenge around equity to start to daylight that for us. It's really great to start to see this be a bigger and bigger focus. Um, I work in the healthcare industry and was recently at a conference where the American Medical Association announced a move to carbon neutral buildings. And it was really encouraging to see that an industry that often resists change is saying, this isn't an option anymore. We have to find a way. I used to feel like it was a constant push, especially around some of this this climate mitigation work. Uh, and I think now it's, or everyone's moving forward. It might not be at the same speed but there's there's a little bit less, less pushing everyone towards this and more just maybe trying to even keep up um, with the kind of data and tools that we need to help. It feels like a really exciting time, but I think you probably remember back when lead was first the big buzzword and everyone was jumping on the bandwagon and there was all the greenwashing going on. Are you concerned that people are trying to game the system right now just to be able to talk the talk? I think no matter what, there's always going to be some gaming of the system that you have to be cognizant of. Uh, I think what's happening right now with carbon emissions specifically, which is what I'm working in deeply right now, is this carbon emission tracking for materials specifically. There's a big push, I think, to learn lessons from where we've seen that happen in the past and really focus on the data and transparency and verification and been in multiple conversations around baselines and benchmarks and how we set them and all these different opinions. But I think I think people have learned a little bit and we are trying to be a little more strategic and careful this time, or at least daylight the fact that we have to know there's going to be some ranges and imperfections we have to deal with and talk about it. It seems a little different in this one space that we're working in now based on some of the work that we've done in the past for other things like health disclosures and things like that. It does seem too that there's more out there. So it's not just about lead, which we all knew had its flaws, but there is the living building challenge. There is well, there is fit well. So there's more tools. Would you recommend using a combination or is it more picking the one that's most appropriate for the project? I think it's definitely picking the one or ones that are most appropriate for your project. Um, I remember a handful of years ago, a slide and a presentation I would give around standards fatigue or certification fatigue, where all of a sudden there is like 20 different options for what you can do. So what do you do? Um, you can just kind of say, gosh, maybe I, sh- I can't do anything because I don't know which one's right. So my suggestion is always to you know set the goals for the project as the goals for the project and think about what those sustainability goals are and then find the right certification or standard program that fits those goals that you have. 
uh, it's going to let you push them maybe farther than you would without the certification, but also give you the chance to talk about them uh, and really celebrate them when you're successful. In your work with Skanska, do you help to educate the design community a little bit more as the design process is evolving? Or do you help more on the back end with how do we make material choices and construction means and methods? Both. And it's great now. Um, Skanska in the U.S. has a Green Project Solutions group. So it's not just me nationally. There's a group of us now uh, to support projects across the country. We typically don't do design bid build work at Skanska. We're largely um, general contractor, construction manager, or we come in during pre-con. So we are there early anyway. We're seeing owners that want us to come in and really help them think through the goals and the standards they're going to set based on the experience we have implementing things so that we can give them, you know, what's possible now, what's possible in the future. How do you say, this is my target today. This is my target tomorrow. So it's fun to get ahead of, ahead of some of those things and really help set those up for success early um, with our owners and clients. And then during that pre-construction phase, what I have learned through doing that pre-construction estimating and that process is that there is a role for the contractor to play, whether it's just pricing different systems and options, the performance of different systems or options, you know, how they all play into the rating systems, all those things that, as the body that's building them and then watching them, you know, be put in place and then sometimes being involved in the operation and maintenance to bring that knowledge forward. So the decisions are, are really made holistically about things. So I do think that we're, we're there a lot of the time in that role. And then there's the actual, just, you know, during construction, if you've done lead projects or living building projects, there's a lot of paperwork and submittal process and verification and to be a trusted partner in that process too. What three things do you just wish that the industry knew, you know, that you just keep bumping into all the time. We say this a lot here in Washington and Seattle, that we're in a little green bubble. So we feel like everyone knows everything that we know, and that's not always the case. So I think, you know, first of all, if everyone could, could actually just define embodied carbon, if I asked them to, that would be one thing. So if I get a chance to define it on this call, I would love to do that. But just understanding um, the role of buildings when it comes to carbon emissions and climate change and knowing those buckets of emissions and what they are. If everyone knew what embodied carbon was and started reducing it, that would be my number one thing. Number two, I think just maybe a perspective shift. I see it happening, but we are a global sector. We're building stuff all over the world. And the things that we can do to reduce our impacts are the same. They might be at different scales anywhere in the world. So let's stop thinking so kind of compartmentalized, whether it's by our role in the process or whether it's by where we sit and start thinking more globally and really try to learn things from uh, different places to help inform your work. Those two are just so important. They eclipse <laughs> everything else. So well, tell us more about embodied carbon, because it's one of those things where I think most people think they know, but maybe we're wrong in what we think. So embodied carbon when you talk about those emissions are all of the emissions associated with the materials that we build out of, how we extract those ingredients like a rock or, or aggregates or whatever that might be, how we transport them to a manufacturing facility using fuel and, and vehicles, how we manufacture them into materials like cement, that's putting CO2 emissions off of it, the stack to make the cement, how we then transport those materials to a job site, how we install them, how many times we replace them and the emissions of those replacements, and then how we dispose of them and hopefully recycle them back into new materials. So really that whole value chain of material manufacturing, use, and disposal. If you think of any emissions associated with that, it's in this embodied carbon bucket. And that embodied carbon bucket is over 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. It has a role to play in really getting to zero. And there's a lot of work going on that I could spend a whole hour talking about in terms of how the industry is now approaching that. But just understanding those emissions to start and realizing they're there is really the basis. 
Yeah. And when you think about that, we're really paying the price for a lot of the throwaway architecture that's been built over the last, let's say, 70 years. It really has gone beyond its useful life, but to demolish and replace it is a big environmental cost. That's my third thing is that thinking more about circularity when you're designing and building, not just that you're going to present a a beautiful building and then walk away, but that building is going to sit there for a long time and then something's going to have to happen to it. And how can you design it so that when that something happens to it, all those materials can be reused and reassembled or, you know, can the building last twice as long if you just think about it a little differently? Yeah, which I think dovetails nicely into this year's Earth Day theme, which is invest in our planet. I I was kind of surprised when I read that. didn't sound like something that group would usually be looking at. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how investing, that choice of word, is different from advocating. What's really interesting and exciting, and I'm going to use that invest word literally first uh, when it comes to, to money, is that in the past, um, when you talk about sustainability in buildings, it's always a cost add to do something sustainably. And that's kind of getting shifted right now where um, there's investments being made, even in the financial sector, where there might be a penalty if you don't build sustainably. And it's, it's letting, it's giving the signals to those financial institutions, those loan um, grantors, um, those public policy compliance you know, factors that there is a pathway to decarbonization or to lowering the environmental impacts of our buildings. And if you incentivize it through investing in those things, you're actually going to reduce costs, whether it's the cost on the climate or the cost um, to that bottom line of the budget. So there's just been a shift there. People are investing heavily in all of the positive things around how we can um, reduce impacts of buildings, whether it's crazy new materials or um, giving these incentives for energy efficiency. So I think we can start to think about the financial cost of sustainability as a positive versus a negative. Yeah, kind of push versus pull strategies. Correct, yeah. Yeah, I had Blaine Brownell on a few months ago, and he does a lot of work researching sustainable materials and thinking differently about how they could perform and get us different results. You know, he was talking about the number of planets of energy that we use, which is another interesting dimension that can kind of feel overwhelming when you're hearing, oh, we're using seven planets worth of resources in this. Yep. Yeah, we just have to think more strategically and holistically about all of it. Quite honestly, we only have the one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we don't get extras. Um, We don't get extra planets. What myth would you most want to bust then in the AEC industry when it comes to issues like sustainability and resiliency and public health? What dots are people just not connecting or connecting maybe the wrong way? So I think between um, sustainability and resiliency, there's an interesting push-pull there when it comes to how we design and build buildings. Um, But if we're thinking through the lens of resiliency, we're actually definitely going to build more sustainably because those buildings are going to last longer and, and be responsive to what happens in the future. I think those sustainability and resiliency are really the same thing. They have to work together for us to be really doing our job. I think between public health, resiliency, and sustainability, public health can sometimes be thought of as just the, the impacts of the building on the person that's going to be inhabiting it, uh, which is the lens that maybe the designer is looking through. There's a much bigger impact in terms of all of the the kind of ripples of what that building's construction and operation is going to do outside of just the people that are inside the building. So how do we think about public health, I think, more outside the walls of what we design and construct uh, versus inside? 
indoor air quality, all those things are still important. But if you kind of broaden the radius um, of who you're impacting or who you're thinking about impacting during design, you might design a little differently. Yeah, because you're creating things like microclimates. You are. Yeah. And just, again, that resiliency lens, if you bring all of them together, a good example is how you might be in a place that's going to have sea level rise or more um, natural disasters over time based on climate. And that building you design might need to be more resilient. And then by being more resilient, it's actually going to be a place where the community can then um, find shelter or utilize it down the road. So that might not be something you're thinking about today building that building unless you've got that kind of in your roadmap or on your list of goals. It's interesting how you can think of it as a network and that any little one decision impacts everything else in the network. But I think a lot of people would say, but I don't have control over the whole network. I only have this one piece. What are your thoughts in that? Do you just try to do the best you can with the part you have or... Are there any tips you have for how you might influence other things in a network? Yeah, you definitely don't have to know everything. There's kind of two models to a network. There's the hub and spoke where you've got the circle in the middle and all the things coming off of it. So that thing in the middle has to be at the center. But in really um, successful ecosystems, which are really uh, the best version of a network where it's it's a bunch of smaller circles connected by lines. So again, like you just said, it's okay if, if you're really good at this one thing. Don't think of yourself as the center of that of that no, that network or that or that project. Think about all the other folks that have the expertise that you don't and the tools that you need that can then create that ecosystem of all the small dots to really to really work well together. I think a lot of us get really stressed about needing to be that center thing <laughs> and and know enough about everything to have everything kind of go out from us. But it's actually kind of freeing once you put yourself in more of that ecosystem thinking with all the small dots and the lines. Yeah. So whatever you're doing is having an impact. So it's important and it matters. Yep. Yep. Maybe focus on making those lines go out in more directions to all the other circles, to all the lines <laughs> without thinking you need to be in the middle. Yeah. So how could others join you? I mean, I, I really love your story and how you took the control to follow your passions and do what you wanted to do and make opportunities and build networks and build influence. Now you very much are a voice of the industry. For others who are interested in climate advocacy and making a difference, uh, what advice would you give them and how they can start to do more than maybe just get credentials? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, oh, that's a big question. The first is don't shy away from learning. I mean, I call myself a sponge sometime. I'll tell my husband I'm sponging on a subject because <laughs> I'm just trying to learn whatever I can about that subject. So if there's something you're interested in, but you don't know a lot about it, it's, it's okay not to know. Just go out and kind of seek out those sources that you can get get smarter on it and just feel, feel like you know more about it so you can start to talk about it or at least find the people you can ask questions to. So that's one thing. I think the second thing is if you think about, again, that ecosystem type of network, like what I did really early was find a couple of those little circles I wanted to be a part of and get engaged with that then led me to other circles talking through that USGBC and kind of living future institute lens. So find one or two of those little circles that really interest you with groups of people, uh, organizations, and you will get connected to others over time and that will really build your own network. And then I think the third is don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Jason McLennan was a big mentor. He was the CEO of Living Future Institute. In some of his early speeches, he talked about what he called the three-quarter baked idea, where don't wait till your idea is perfect to share it. You need to get it out there when it's thoughtful. I think that's just if you are coming up with solutions or having ideas about things that you could help solve. When you have a thoughtful version of that idea, uh, 
talk about it, bring others into the fold and, and really get thoughts and opinions to really push it closer to that, that perfect thing that's going to be out in the world. I think you know, the work I'm doing at EC3 is an example of that right now for those who know what that is, but don't be, don't feel like you need to be perfect before you share your ideas um, or your thoughts. Yeah. Now I'd love it if you could share a little bit more about EC3. EC3 is a, a tool. It's the embodied carbon and construction calculator. Um, the start is an idea um, that I had with a, a small group of people in my role at Skanska to try to figure out how to tackle these embodied carbon emissions by creating a tool that would provide all of that carbon data for materials and a, a free open access database um, that anyone could use. And so now it's a, a free tool that's hosted at a nonprofit called Building Transparency. Uh, and it's got around 22,000 registered users today since we launched it in 2019. But it started as just an imperfect idea. Then a whole bunch of folks you know, got involved with that idea um, and helped make it, make it happen. And now it's something that the industry can, can point to. That's amazing. Just by being willing to help connect some dots and provide some resources, then more people join and more people join and it starts to really make a difference. So Stacy, how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your work or learn more about some of these initiatives that you're involved in? I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. So I've got, you know, message me on LinkedIn gets to me faster than emails a lot of the time, uh, just because it's it's going somewhere specific. But post, I try to post every day something informative on LinkedIn. There's a climate job group on there too. That's a really good way. The other is I'm more than happy to share my email address if you want to put it in the, the comments for folks. Sure, sure. Yeah, we can we can definitely do that because I know sustainability is a important issue in this audience, but I think a lot of people feel like they're just pushing ropes sometimes, yep. you know, dealing with bureaucracy, getting clients to actually want to do some of this stuff and championing it. And so I think seeing that there are other cracks in the surface there, other ways in that it's not always, well, that means we've got to get them to pursue getting the building certified or the project certified. And if they don't want to do that, then maybe we can sneak in some materials and methods, but that's all we can do. Like, I think you've really helped everyone to see that there's a lot of other avenues to pursue and a lot of other ways to work both project-based and industry-based to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Well, thank you so much. I know this was really inspiring to me and I'm sure everyone in our audience will feel the same way. If you enjoyed this, reach out to Stacy, send her a note, let her know what you got out of her talk. I know that she will definitely appreciate hearing your, your insights and your support. And thank you again for joining us today, Stacy. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You made it all the way to the end of the episode, which means you are committed to making yourself a priority so you can be empowered to do the work you were called to do in the world. How amazing is that? If you would like even more content just like this, please remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I would so appreciate it if you left an honest review too. Hey, I want you to know I'm here for you beyond the boundaries of this podcast. You can follow me on social media at Architecting Podcast or visit architectingpodcast.com to download some great free resources. Take care, everyone, and stay inspired.